Go ahead and grab a seat. Welcome to Susquehanna Valley Church. Uh, my name is Matt Saxinger, and I get to be a uh, senior pastor here. And I'm thankful for you coming out. I'm thankful for you watching us online. Um, if you're tuning in live or if you're tuning in later in the week, we just we, we want to say that we're glad that you choose to connect with God by connecting with us. Um, and so that's a big deal for us. We want to thank you for that. Um, hey, so I thought I'd start out this week by, by uh, just sharing some things I was thinking about this week as I was thinking about being a dad and thinking about things that nobody ever told me that would be true of me when I became a dad, things that like I used to look at and be like, that's ridiculous. Um, so for instance, um, I, I realized that nobody told me that when I was a dad, I would be so incredibly dedicated to get the last bit of toothpaste out of every toothpaste tube. I mean, like, honestly, it's like you've got to, I've even thought about getting tools out to, like, get that little bit of toothpaste out. And I had one where I was going for, like, I thought it was ready to be thrown out. I was like, I wonder how much more toothpaste I can get out of this. I went another 30 days of brushing my teeth until my wife finally threw the toothpaste tube out. That's how dedicated it was. Nobody told me how dedicated I'd be to turning off light bulbs. Like, to make sure the lights in the room get off. Like, I can spot a light. I, I, I'll just have a feeling. Right now, I think upstairs in the kid's bathroom, there's a light on. I just, it's an intuition thing. Nobody told me that as a dad that that would happen. Nobody told me as a dad that when I sat down for five minutes, it would take me ten to get back up. Like, I, I would just go through this process of moaning and groaning to be able to get back up out of the seat uh, to, to get on with life. Nobody told me that as a dad. Nobody told me that... Um, that I would have lots of little things that annoy me all day long. And when finally, finally, when one of them got to me, I would overreact with the weight of every one of them. And I get far more angry than I should. And nobody told me that as a dad, I would finally get a minute to sit down and it would be the exact moment that my kids would need something. And nobody told me how easy it would be to be selfish in that moment. Nobody told me how hard it would be to admit I was wrong. Nobody told me how hard it would be to confess. And we're going to talk about this this morning. We're talking about that idea of confession, of saying I was wrong, like, like we just did, where we're saying, you know what, I, I'm guilty of an overreaction to my kids' uh, little annoyance, or I'm guilty of, of just a, a laziness at times. And, and nobody told me how hard it would be to confess. And so we're going to look at Psalm 32, where David in the 32nd Psalm is confessing. Now, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of guessing as to what sin he's talking about, maybe the sin between uh, him and Bathsheba, an adulterous affair. And I think that's probably right. But the point of Psalm 32 isn't the specific sin. Um, the point of Psalm 32 is really what, what did sin do to him? What did sin do to him, and, and what does he do with sin? Now, we're living in a fascinating time as a society because uh, when I grew up, the push was for our society, for American culture to be this postmodern existence where there is no truth. There's no, there's no wrong. There's no right. There's no morality. Um, and so we've moved past the idea of sin. And sin is, sin is beneath us. It's behind us. It's just your opinion. Um, there's not really a moral right or a moral wrong. And what's been fascinating about the, the, these last few months is that what we've seen is a change in the nature of the way that our society talks about wrongs. Now it's not just like th- this, this is not a big deal. Now there's hatred behind it. Now I, I've actually seen articles where the headlines mention the word sin. 
I'm thinking that's fascinating because we tried to do everything we could to move away from sin, and now it's now it's front page soon, front front page news where you've got sins of racism or sins of intolerance or sins of injustice, and, and I'm thinking, wow, wow, this is interesting. But here's the deal: while sin is in vogue again, while while we like to punish people for things they said a decade ago, or we like to hate people for something that they do or some way they live, while our society has come out against the idea of certain sins, they pay no attention to what sin does to the sinner. All they want to do is cancel the person, delete the person, move on from the person. They pay no attention to what sin does to the sinner, and they have no answer for what do we actually do with sin. What do we do with it? And Psalm 32 is so incredibly important because David, David is going, this is what Psalm did to me, how it wrecked my life, how it brought a darkness on my soul. And this is what I found I had to do with sin. It's what it did with me and, and, and what he had to do with it. And so we'll read from the 32nd Psalm and just walk our way through this and, th- and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll look at those two things. What does sin do with him and then, then what does he do with sin? Uh, Psalm 32, verse one. Uh, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. Let's pray. Father God, I ask this morning that as we consider a topic that our society has kind of come back to, in a sense, in this idea of seeing wrong and seeing the way that wrong affects society, but in the process, they've really, they've really A, they haven't defined sin according to the way that you have, and then B, they have no solution to it that's really really caring and considered or merciful or, or even just. Um, so, Father, I pray that we would be a people who understand sin well, but more importantly, as we understand you, we'd be a people who confess because it's in confession of sin that we find a freedom that's unparalleled in this world. Um, we ask that in, in your son's name. Amen. So, so David uh, is really giving his personal testimony here. This is him going... Uh, I experienced this. This was my life. I don't want it to be yours. I don't want you to be in the same shoes that I was in. It took me way too long to come to my sentences. So this is David kind of having that prodigal son moment where he was away from God and he realized, like, wait a second. Like, I'm out here living in absolute filth when in my father's house I would be so much better. This is David going, wow, I need to go back. Um, I see what sin has done to me. 
and, and I found what I need to do with sin. Uh, we're we're going to uh, mention Tim Keller's name a couple times this morning uh, as I work through and prep this sermon. Man, it's just his thoughts were so pertinent to what we're talking about. So um, uh, we'll, we'll quote him a couple times, and we'll start here. That he calls, he calls sin, in Psalm 32, he talks about Psalm 32 as this is the poisonous reality of sin. The poisonous reality of sin. Uh, my wife discovered this app the other day, this app where you can scan a nutrition label uh, or scan something on a product, and it will rate from 1 to 10 how toxic that product is and how likely it is to cause uh, cancer or, or different ailments. And so um, she'll literally go into the grocery store and be like, oh, well, that shampoo is like a 9 out of 10. It's filled with chemicals that are bad for you, that are harmful for you, um, and, and just, just, you know, it gives you this kind of insight as to what that chemical actually is. And this is David going, I, I sat down and I scanned sin, and it's off the charts. It is so incredibly detrimental to me and the life that God has called me to and the life that God wants for me, it is toxic to me. It is a poisonous reality. David, David uses two terms to talk about sin here in Psalm 32. And the first one is, uh, it's translated disobedience. It's, it's the Hebrew word pasha, which means uh, it, it's a rebellious self-assertion. It's a rebe- rebellious self-assertion. It's this desire within us um, to, to, prove, to prove that nothing can limit us, that no one can limit me. Have you ever seen a line that says don't? Or a sign that says you can't or, or don't go here? And isn't there a little part of you that says, who are you to tell me what I can't do? Who are you to tell me that I can't have dessert before my dinner? Who are you to tell me uh, that, that I can't go on the beach after a certain time? Who are you to tell me? There's a little part of us um, th- that's there. It, we see it. We see it in these lighthearted moments. But what Scripture teaches us is that pasha, that desire, that self-assertion to break a rule is, is part of our life, and it contaminates, it's toxic on every level. And any time there's a limitation or a boundary introduced in our lives, there's a desire for us to say, who are you? Who are you to say that I can't or that I shouldn't? Who are you to place a limitation or a boundary upon me? And what Pasha, what it wants to do is it wants to break. It wants to break free. It wants this independence to say, I don't need God. I don't need anybody else. I don't need your limitations. I don't need your rules. Uh, And so I'll break them. Even, Even within our relationships, this shows up in promises and desire to break a promise. Or desire to, to break something and to hurt somebody around us. That's Pasha. And this is why, this is why the very idea of, of somebody who knows nothing about God and wants nothing to do with God, this is why it is so incredibly offensive for them to consider submitting to God. That they might redesign their life and reorient their life around a God is so incredibly offensive to them to think about because Pasha is within the heart. This desire to break. Why would you, why would you want a God? Who places a limitation on you? Why would you want a God that brings responsibility to your life? Because you have Pasha that wants to say, no, 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 I don't want that. And so while modern society may have revisited the idea of sin, they certainly have not, and I'd be extremely surprised if they revisit the idea of sin as it means to God. As if, as if we would stop and ask the question, of what if there is a God and his morality, in fact, matters to him, or, and your, your morality, in fact, matters to him. What if there's a God and your sexuality matters to him? What if there's a God and your finances 
or the motives of your heart? What if they matter to him? Pasha is the part of you that wants nothing to do with it. It's a sinful part of you that wants to consider, doesn't want to consider that there is a God and the things that you do in the secret and the quiet actually matter. That, that's, that's Pasha, and that, that's one word. The other word he uses is hata, which is to go off the path. You see, you see at the end of the psalm where David says, uh, there's a right path that is best for my life. That's, that's him countering hata. That's, that's him countering this idea that you would go off, you would do something um, that veers from life as God intended it. And so, so think about it. When you sin, you're stepping off the reality that God had for you, that God desires for you, that's best for you, onto this kind of alternate reality path. So we take a sin, we take a sin like gossip where the second that you gossip and the second that you speak badly about somebody else who's not in the room, what you do is you begin to walk down a path that God never, ever, ever intended you to go down with that person. And so when you gossip, you're now walking an alternate path than the one that's trusting and one that's loving, one that's gently confrontational, one that's encouraging, and you walk an alternate reality path where now now you've, you've done something where you've betrayed somebody and you can't let them find out. You don't want them to know. And now you have somebody that you've gossiped to, not about, but to, and that person is, is looking at you differently now. Why? Because you've walked a path that God never intended you to walk. And what happens is, what happens is when you walk, when you walk away, when you, when you hata, when you go off the path, what also happens is these two things come, pasha. And the relationship, the way that it was intended, is broken. And it's not there. And so what David finds is David walks down this path and experiences not just this alternate reality of what God intended, but he also experiences his brokenness, and and he experiences what I think are deep, natural consequences. And David cries out. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. My strength was sapped as it was the heat of summer. You know what he's saying? He's saying that I found when I broke, when I found that I broke promises, when I found that I broke rules, when I found that I broke commandments, what I found was that I also broke myself, that I wasn't made to exist in this way. It's like a young man who gets angry, and in his anger, he turns around and he punches the wall and he breaks the wall, but he also breaks his hand. That's what David finds. I've broken the commands of God. I've broken the wall. And in the process, I've also broken myself. And he describes what is very detrimental to his internal experience of life, where his conscience is, is wrecked and his soul, is, his soul feels deserted. Uh, I, I was talking with somebody the other week about how uh, my, my preferred footwear choice is Chacos. Uh, we talked about that in a sermon not too long ago. And he said, what was interesting is later that night, this, this guy I was talking to, he said, later that night, I watched this uh, show, and it was about the Chaco National Historical Site in New Mexico. And I was like, what? I had no idea that that was a thing. And, and he goes on to describe this, this series of ancient ruins that, that really were um, th- this, uh, this group of people who lived in the desert and made this very, very difficult living in the desert. And I, I, we got to talking about, like, why wouldn't you, if you lived in the desert, just keep walking till you got out of the desert and say, I'm going to live wherever this ends? Like, why wouldn't you just say, you know what, this is really hard. <laughs> There's got to be a place where it's not so hard, and let me just walk somewhere until I find the place that's not so hard to live, and I'll live there. And we were talking about it, and then he, he just said, you know what, it, it's probably all they knew. 
It's probably all they knew. Some of us, some of us, I, I think living outside of confession, living in this darkness that David talks about is all we know. We don't know the freedom he speaks of. We don't know the, the land that exists where I don't have guilt, where I don't have this drain upon my soul. We live in this wasteland because it's all we know. And David comes along and he says, 32nd Psalm, you need to know that, that sin, sin will just wreck your life from an internal perspective. You can become callous to it, but it'll change you. As you break the commands, as you break the rules, as you break the limitations, you break yourself. And David has an experience where, where he finally comes to a reality. He has this deep season of unrest and he comes to this understanding of what sin did to him, and it made him say, I've got to do something with sin. I see what sin has done to me. I see when I've walked off the path, I see that I've broken, I see that it's broken me. And so I have to do something with sin. And what David decided was this. He decided that distance from God was not the solution to his deepest problems. The distance from God was not the, the solution to his deepest problems. David, David realizes this really this big turning point for him. He, he, he says, what am I doing? I'm going to bring this before God. I'm going to confess my sin to him. And I'm going to lay it out before him. And what, what David found was the solution was not to run from God, but was to come near to God. In Psalm 32, it's interesting. If, if you study the Psalms a lot, there's, there's these different Psalms that are characterized in different ways. Like this is a Psalm of praise, or this is a Psalm of thanksgiving, or, or, or this is a Psalm of confession. This, Psalm 32, is actually, even though there's a confession, this is a Psalm of praise. And when it starts out, David, David begins in a note of extreme gratitude. Why? Why? Because he found the solution. He understood the problem, but he found the solution. And David is delighted. He uses the highest expression of happiness and exuberance in their language to say that God in his wisdom has provided a solution. That God, while he was the one who was disobeyed, while he was the one who was disrespected, it was his rule and his law, God has provided the solution. And those who confess, even the most openly rebellious sin, the way the psalm reads, even the person who says, God, I don't like you, God, I hate you, I'm going to sin anyway, even that person has two things happen, that, that their sin is put out of sight and their records are cleared. Their sin is put out of sight and the records are cleared. In other words, if you, through faith in Jesus Christ, you confess your sin, if you were to go back and look at your spiritual record, it'd be, looking like, it'd be like you were looking for a leprechaun. You're not going to find it. It's not there. You know, I find sometimes that we have a past. And we're afraid if somebody knew my past, if, if somebody showed up and started talking about me, or if it became clear what I did, <coughs> I find that we have this, this attachment to our past that through faith, Jesus Christ says, you do not have. It's not there anymore. He's removed it. He's taken it off the record. Now, you can look for it on your spiritual account all day long, but it is gone. It's absolutely gone. That's, this is why David says we get to live without the deceit. We get to come before God with absolute honesty because we can be entirely unhypocritical in front of him because there's no discrepancy between what our spirit wants to be true about us and what is. There's no discrepancy between what our spirit wants to be true about us and what is. Because I know that spiritually speaking, God has removed my sin. God has 
God has removed the record of my sin. And to David, it's this tremendous blessing, which is, which is why he starts out with this praise of, yes, what joy for those whose records have been cleared. What joy for those whose record have been cleared. Let me ask you a question. If you had to choose between having all the beauty in the world, having all the power in the world, or all the wealth in the world, which would you choose? Because either you're going to be the most beautiful or most, most handsome, or you're going to be the, the most powerful, or you're going to be the wealthiest. Which one would you choose? And whatever your answer is, if then if I were to say, if you had to choose between that, and there's a God who you could be in eternal, endless right standing with, which one would be more valuable to you? And I ask that because I want you to see the value. I want you to see that God has given you more than you could ever desire. That you, to have an endless right standing with him, is in a, the, the, the highest thing that you could ever be gifted in life. Better than beauty, better than power, better than wealth. To have God say, I forgive you, I've removed your record, I've hidden your sin. is fascinating. It's David. David kind of goes back to God like a dog kind of sheepishly goes back to its owner, and David just finds unexpected positive praise from God. This is beyond what he could have ever anticipated. I, I was thinking about this idea, this unexpected positive idea, and I was trying to come up with a word for it. And I thought I thought I knew a word, which wasn't really a word. Um, and so I started to type the word, and it kept like auto-correcting, and I was like, no, I want that word, but it wasn't really a word, and the word that I thought was a word was windfall, W-I-N-F-A-L-L, windfall. Um, turns out that's not a word, uh, but I thought in my mind the, the phrase was windfall because it was like when somebody ran a, a race, and they won, and they fell down. That's a windfall. He won, and he fell. Like you, you cut down a tree and it goes where you want. That's, that's a windfall. Fall in love, that's a windfall. Um, turns out there is no windfall. It is windfall, W-I-N-D-F-A-L-L. Um, and I was quite disappointed to read that the definition of windfall, which does exist, is, is what I was thinking it was. There's a result that's positive and beneficial, and then it go, that, that was unexpected, and then it goes on to give an example and says, it's like when the wind blows an apple off a tree. I'm like, that's a windfall. That's, that's what that is. But apparently, windfall, windfall, it's this unexpected, unexpected wind, um, or wind. <laughs> David moved close to God, and he found out something. He found out that forgiveness is an incredible windfall for our conscience an incredible windfall for our conscience, that a clear heart is so incredibly valuable. And, and it's a blessing that is so great that we really don't even begin to realize how great it is. Uh, Tim Keller, he says this about, about this, this concept. He says, confession is liberating. It relieves your conscience. It silences the voice inside of you. It gets rid of the feeling that you are stained. That's it right there that you're stained, that there's something tarnished about you. When sin broke you, there, there was a mark on you that you felt. There was a guilt that you felt. Maybe not the millionth time, but the first time before you calloused and hardened your heart with it. There was a guilt, and there was a stain. And, and, and there's this idea that if people knew, and that's that stain that's there, and look, look, we, we hide. We hide our sin, and David tried to hide his sin. 
And when he did, he found that his stubbornness kept him from enjoying the freedom of a clear conscience before God. Man, please, don't hide your sin. Don't become calloused in it. Don't live in a wasteland when there's so much grace and joy in Jesus Christ in a relationship with you. Look, look at verse five again. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my trans- transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I want us to be on the same page about confession because you may have had a different experience or, or maybe it was taught to you in a way um, that, that's really rigid and formal. It's intensely personal. It's intensely personal. It's not formal. It's not, it's not to some guy behind a screen. What Scripture presents is this idea. Um, it's in 1 John. It's in Hebrews where, where it talks about this idea that we can freely go to God and, and we can approach with confidence and we'll find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Why? Why? Because he's so incredibly gracious that he wants us to come here. Even when we're dirty, even when we're, when, when we're the one at fault, and even when we're disobedient, he wants us to come back to this place. See, confession is primarily about ownership and acknowledgement. It's about ownership and acknowledgement. Ownership's easy. It's mine. I did it. God, this was my choice. It was my rebellion. It was my step off the path. I broke it. Ownership is, is, is easy. Acknowledgement is the part that we miss out on. Acknowledgement is, and th- this is key, and the psalm brings this out. When David, when David talks about the sin at the beginning, he talks about uh, Peshai, he talks about Hatah, talk, he talks about those two things. And then when David goes to confess, he uses those same two words. Why? Because he's acknowledged it. He's acknowledged sin, not from David's perspective, but he's acknowledged it from God's. And that's the key to confession. The key to confession is I, I own it, it's mine, and I own it not as I see it, but I own it as you see it. How you see it is the bigger deal. In fact, you, you go to 1 John 1, if we confess our sin, sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That word forget, or that word confess is the Greek word homo legeo, which means to say the same. If we go to God and we say the same thing, we say the same thing, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It, it's so incredibly powerful when you wrong someone else to say it from their perspective in your apology. And I hope we're really good at, good at apologies. I hope as a church, like we're gonna mess up, we're gonna wrong. I hope that we as individuals are really good at apologizing. And if you wanna be really, really good at apologizing, you know what you gotta do? You've gotta say it and see it from their perspective. You, you, you've gotta be able to acknowledge the other person's perspective without diminishing it. I'm wrong, I, I didn't value your time as much as I should have. I'm sorry, I wasn't as considerate of how you felt and what I said sounded very disrespectful. I'm sorry. It's seeing it from the other person's perspective without minimizing it. Guys, as husbands, we do this a lot. We will minimize our wife's experience of our problem. It's no big deal. You know I didn't mean that. And what we're doing is we're minimizing it. Confession and, and real apologies you're finding, what you're doing is you're finding true reconciliation. You're finding healing by stepping over to their side and saying, this is what you felt. This is what I've done to cause you pain from your perspective. And I wish I hadn't. 
And that, that is the art of, of a good apology and it's the start of great confession. To, to openly own and to acknowledge. Confession isn't. I want to tell you a couple of things that confession isn't because of what confession is. It's owning and it's acknowledging. So what that means then is confession isn't blaming someone else. Confession isn't, real confession isn't trying to incriminate somebody else so you don't look so bad. It's not saying, well, I'm sorry, but I wouldn't have done that if you would have never done this. I'm sorry, but, you know, this goes way back to the way that I was raised, and, and really it's my mom's fault. No, confession isn't trying to incriminate somebody else. It's not trying to blame somebody else. Confession isn't this, and these next two are straight from Tim Keller. Uh, confession is not about self-pity. The biggest deal is not the fact that you've been exposed or embarrassed. The biggest deal is not that you've been inconvenienced in any way. The biggest deal for your sin is that we've sinned against God, that we've overstepped the most incredibly loving being to ever exist. And 1 John says he is love. And we've broken his commands. We've grieved him. Confession, the biggest deal is not that it's affected you. That's self-pity. The biggest deal is that it's affected God. Confession is also, confession is not beating yourself up. It's not trying to pay the debt by your own self-sabotage and your own self-imprisonment. It's not beating yourself up. It's openly owning and acknowledging and handing it over to God and saying, God, you're in charge of the consequences of my choice. I don't need to punish myself. That's your role, not mine. It's, it's not self-pity. It's not beating yourself up. It's not blaming somebody else. What confession is, is walking into an agreement with God where you're saying, God, this is what I've done. This is what you say about it. This is how it's offended you. My future and, and the response to this is in your hands. And what, what happens then is we, we do what John Calvin talks about where he says, God is the physician, so let us show him our wounds and sores. We're just going before God and saying, God, I've sinned. Here's my wound. Here's my sore. And what we find is the great physician is an expert at healing us, an expert at taking away the wound, an expert of removing any scar that would be there from the sore. He's an absolute expert. So David talks about what sin did with him and what he did with it. And what he did with it is he said, God, this is what it is. I give it to you. And what he found was that God was incredibly loving and faithful and loyal, despite the fact that David had not acted loyalty, loyally at all. You, you, know, why, you know how God could do this without, without being unjust? Because God, God could have just said, okay, okay well, I'll just, I'll just pretend your sins have never existed. And then somebody could come along and say, well, wait a second, God, you're unjust then. How could you not punish a wrong? But God can say this, and God can do this. Why? Because Jesus took our wrongs. And, and Isaiah talks about that he laid this, the, the iniquity, he laid the sin of us all upon him. And so David can find confession because the sin that he's being forgiven of, as drastic and, and ugly and, and horrible as that sin was, the Son of God would pay for it on the cross. And that, that's the gospel. That our sin, the sin that we hand over to God, has been paid for by the blood of the Son of God on the cross. And what that brings and what that tells us is, is 
is really there should be two moments of confession. One is this grand initial moment of confession, and then two is this, this everyday God of sin confession. There's two different types of confession. And the, the first is grand moment of confession is, is God, I recognize that you are real, that you have done something to provide a solution to my sin. And so God, I trust you that you went to the cross for me to pay for it. The everyday confession is God saying today, God, I've, I've sinned. I, I've walked off the path. And God says, I'll cleanse you. I'll cleanse you. This plays out perfectly in John chapter 13 where Jesus at the Last Supper um, is walking around and he's washing the disciples' feet. He's washing the, washing the followers of his feet. And his followers are just astounded that, wow, the Son of God would bow down and wash my feet. And Peter, in his boldness and his impulsiveness, says, says, Jesus, you'll never wash my feet, not mine. No, no, you could never commit this act of humility to me. I, I'm not worthy of it. And, and Jesus says, no, you don't understand, Peter. If I don't wash you, you have no part of me. And then Peter says, aha, I've got it figured out. I need a bath. Cleanse all of me. And Jesus says, ah, Peter, no, no, no. See, you've already had a bath. But your feet got dirty, so we've got to wash your feet. And what Jesus is explaining is this very idea of, of two different confessions. One is, Peter, you understand who I am. You've confessed me as Lord and Savior. You see me as the Son of God. You've been washed. Your spirit is entirely clean. But Peter, you need to understand something. That doesn't mean that you're practically perfect. Because Peter, I saw the way you spoke to your mother-in-law. Peter, I, I saw the way that you, you didn't appreciate my creation as much as you should have, and you, you, you littered the other day. I, I don't know, whatever Peter did. And P Peter, your feet are dirty. And, and I love you so much that I don't even want the soles of your feet to be dirty in our relationship. I want perfectly clean, no, no, no stain on any of our relationship. And so two different types of confession that we, we both need to have, that we, all, we need to have both. One is that grand moment of, of Jesus, the weight of my sin is entirely upon your cross. And two, Jesus, I still walk practically imperfect. And I want to come and I want to enjoy the best of the relationship that I can enjoy with you. And that comes when my feet are clean. Uh, in, in just a second, uh, the worship team's going to come up and, and they're going to sing a song, which is one of the songs that's just near and dear to my heart. And it's, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. And my heart is for you to have a song of confession right now. And maybe for you, it's that song of, of that grand confession of I've found the solution to my sin. And Jesus is in you. Or maybe this is you just going, God, my feet are, my feet are dirty. I've walked in filth and I want to come back to a place where I'm as right with you as I can be in a relationship standpoint. Let's pray. God, I love you, and I ask that you draw us back to, to you here. That, God, we not want to live under the weight and contamination of sin, but we'd want to be back in a place that's just so incredibly beautiful and refreshing. Father God, bring us to a place where we praise you for your wisdom and how you deal with our sin. Amen.